Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweiback. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Zach Bodner. He's the CEO of the Oshman Family Jewish Community Center in Palo Alto and the founder of the Z3 Project. Before joining the JCC, Zach worked for 14 years as the Pacific Northwest Regional Director of APAC. His new book, Why Do Jewish? A Manifesto for 21st Century Jewish Peoplehood, explores what it means to live a meaningful, relevant, and joyful Jewish life. Stay tuned and be inspired. So my dear friend, Zach Bodner, thank you so much for making time for the podcast. I really enjoyed reading the book. And one of the parts that I love is how not only is it something that can really help us, whether it's with a friend, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, but it's also really about our own Jewish lives and how we can get meaning. And you talk about living meaningful, relevant, and joyful Jewish lives. And I'd love you to say a word about each one of those descriptors, meaningful, relevant, joyful, why those three, and what do they, what do they represent to you? Absolutely. Uh, so first of all, just a big thank you, Yoshi. I really appreciate you inviting me as a guest on your podcast, inviting me to your congregation, um, and, and taking the book seriously. It's, uh, it's no philosophical tome. I'm no you know, Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory, but uh, I felt like this was somewhat of a user's guide, right? Somewhat of a guidebook for those who are um, looking to make their lives meaningful, relevant, and joyful, as you mentioned. And they had this inkling that maybe I could do this on a Jewish path. These are the folks that sent their kids to your preschool or my preschool, right? The folks who sent their kids to a Jewish preschool, but then their lives got so busy that kids got consumed with soccer or dance or basketball, and pretty soon they just, um, they're not even really doing Shabbat anymore, or the holidays when they come around once a year, but then they're feeling this kind of emptiness in their lives. They're like, look, I know there's something more to this. And I remember when my kids were at Stephen S. Weiss Preschool or at the JCC Preschool, and I loved that they did the holidays. I loved that they did Shabbat. I love that they brought Jewish values into our everyday world. Um, and that's what it means to be meaningful, and that's what it means to be relevant. And, and the preschool model, Yoshi, is what means to be joyous, right? When we think about these kids who are just so happy to celebrate life and, and to do it in a Jewish way— that's what I think about when I think about making Jewish life meaningful, relevant, and joyful. For those of us who are just so busy with our day-to-day, I mean, you and I are professional Jews. This is what we do. This is what we think about 23 hours a day. I figure maybe one hour a day we're not. Uh, but for those other hours of the day, we're like, how are we going to do this? But most people out there, they're living their lives. Um, and if they see Jewishness as, ah, oh, it just means what I can't do on Shabbat. I can't drive. I can't use lectures. It just means I can't eat my favorite old pepperoni pizza. Just, if That's how it was for me growing up, Yoshi. For me, Jewish life was a lot about what I couldn't do. And when I got old enough to appreciate, and, and especially on my first trip to Israel, I realized, what, wow, this is what Jewish life can be. It became meaningful again to me. It, it created a sense of joy, a sense of pride, um, and the relevance came back, you know? And so that's... That's what it means to kind of bring that back into people's lives today, um, and especially for our kids who have so many other choices. You know, um, Rab- Rabbi Danielle Hartman of the Shalom Hartman Institute used to, talks about how there used to be intermarriage when an A would marry a B. And he says there's no more intermarriage today because everybody's an A, B, C, D, E, F, G, 
and they're all marrying a G H I J K L M N O P, right? Like so, we have multiple identities, and when we're no longer just a Jew. Because 200 years ago, Yoshi, for you and I, who are Ashkenormative Jews, right? Like, and our lives were based around, like, if you lived in the shtetl 200 years ago, to find how you lived, how, where you lived, how you dressed, how you ate, who you married, what you did for a living. But today, if we're Jewish, it's just one piece of our identities. So if that Jewish piece becomes no longer relevant, it's like, you know, you're, you wear your, your, your big warm coat to the snowy mountains, but then you come back down to the beaches of LA, you're going to shed that warm coat because you don't need it anymore. It's irrelevant. So if our young people see Judaism that way, it's irrelevant, it's archaic, they're going to shed that winter coat. So how can we, leaders like you and I, make Jewish life relevant, meaningful, and joyful for them? That's what it means. Thank you. I love I love the emphasis on each one of them, and they, they come together beautifully. Without all three, you know, if it's just meaningful and relevant, but there's no joy there's no you know passion to it well that's not good and and it has to be relevant to the lives we're living today in the world we find ourselves in and one thing that Judaism i think always has been is relevant it's always found a way to reinvent itself to help you make those connections i mean i'm just thinking about you know this uh, last week's tour portion the first one in the book of exodus and uh, and and i was uh, with my torah study class and we talked about I brought in an amazing lecture that Moshe Halbertal, who's taught at the Shalom Hartman Institute for for decades, shared with me uh, years ago about how the beginning of Exodus really becomes a type of blueprint for how to um, how to make genocide possible for your people. Uh, you know, God forbid, um, but. But the book of Exodus shows us that. And then when you read that now, as I'm reading it now, and I'm thinking about you know the propaganda machine uh, that is part of Putin's um, war of aggression against Ukraine, it's like now I'm seeing that in a whole different way than when Moshe Halbertal taught it to me 15 years ago. So you know, there's always ways to make those connections. Um, you know, you call the book "Why Do Jewish?" A manifesto for 21st century Jewish peoplehood, and uh, and I'd love you to to share with everybody why you chose that phrase, you know, doing Jewish as opposed to why be Jewish. Yeah, well, thank you. I, um, it, I when I was thinking about it, I realized in doing the research there are four books out there with the title "Why Be Jewish," and there were no books with the title "Why Do Jewish," and in my mind, it's so much more these days about the doing. Uh, than the being. You know, for for you and I, Yoshi, um, we surround ourselves by people who are living Jewish values. And we don't really care who their mother was, who their father was. We don't care who was the rabbi who converted them, or even if they did convert. There is a a woman on our board of directors here, a Japanese woman, who likes to call herself the Japanese shiksa. Um, She married a Jewish guy. He happened to be born of Jewish parents, but he's not the one holding the Jewish torch. He's not the one keeping the Jewish flame. It's her. She never converted, but she sees herself as a part of our mishpacha, a part of our family. She schleps the kids to Hebrew school. She makes the Shabbos dinner. She makes the Passover Seder with these really cool Japanese undertones. She's leading our family trip to Israel this summer. Not him. So it's about the doing because it's no longer... Now, of course, it's about the being. Of course, if you want to make aliyah, you have to deal with those challenges. Of course, you know, when you get into other non-reform versions of uh, of Judaism, you know, the being is going to be an important uh, discussion point. But in my mind, how you live and what you do is way more important. And, and, and there's this... I start the book off with this quote from David Ben-Gurion, words without deeds are nothing. 
because it really is in my mind about the doing. Um, and, and I love this word tachlis, this great Yiddish word, which means getting, bound, getting down to business, getting down to brass tacks. It's, it's the doing that matters most, you know? And so that just always resonated with me, Yoshi. Um, that, uh, and, and basically Judaism also, by the way, is a, as you know, uh, is a religion. First of all, if we consider it a religion, we, we know that it's a religion, a nationality, an ethnicity, a moral code, but it's about the doing. It's about 613 mitzvot. It's about, you know, not just like you can you can live your life all week long and do terrible things and then, you know, you could choose to confess on a weekend and then your your slate is clean. It's about the do. What are the actions you're going to take? So it's always resonating with me. Like, what are we going to do to live a meaningful life? I, I never like this whole, ah, don't worry, Yoshi. It's the thought that counts. Oh, I missed your birthday, but you know what? I thought about saying, no, I'm sorry, but but what are you going to do to take it one step further? So that's why for me, it's about the doing in many ways. By the way, I should put the plug in, Zach. I mean, nice birthday gift, copy of Why Do Jewish? I mean, there you go. There you go. Bar mitzvahs, exactly. bat mitzvahs, the whole thing. Um, All right, when's know, Jacqueline's birthday? I know it together. There you go. <laughs> um, you, talk, you talk about one part that I really love and it resonated with me where you talk about the meaning of life from a Jewish perspective, and and it's about partnering with God in completing the world. Where did that concept come to you first from? And you know, in, in this in this book, you combine some personal experiences, which are are really beautiful. Especially for me, as someone who's known you for a long time, I loved learning those those aspects of who you are and those stories. Um, but. But that sense of wow, now this is it. This is the meaning of life. That's when did that come to you, and how do you how do you enact that in terms of trying to complete the world, make the world a better place? How do you live that in in your own life? Yeah, thank you. Um, I was initially turned on to Abraham Joshua Heschel by Rabbi Levi Sell. Um, who you may remember from uh, HUC days, and he was my advisor in graduate school, and um, I fell in love with this notion of being partners with God. Um, I really liked it intellectually, but I didn't really get it in my kishkas, in my guts. I didn't really understand it emotionally until um, a couple years later. So it was about 1998, and I was living in Sacramento, and I was working in the state capitol, and I was working as a legislative assistant, and I was just seeing a lot of the, uh, the challenges in life. Right? I was seeing a lot of the poverty. I was seeing a lot of the homelessness. I was seeing inner city gang warfare in LA. I was working for a member of the California State Senate who represented Los Angeles. And so, you know, I went into parts of the gang ridden bloods versus crips stuff. And I just was seeing a lot of the pain in the world. And I kind of got into one of these existential crises where I was like, what is it all about? Why are we here? What is the point of this if, it's, if there's so much pain and suffering in the world? And I was lying in my bed one night up in Sacramento, and then just, it hit me. I know it sounds super cheesy, but this is really how it happened. It kind of hit me like a bolt of the blue. Like, I'm lying in bed, and I was like, boom. And it, and it struck me, Yoshi, that this is why we are here. The meaning of life is to be God's partners in creation. I had this notion that... And I don't really believe that God is up there in his white robes, an old white man with a white beard, pulling the strings like a puppeteer. I don't really see it that way. I have more of a, a panentheistic notion that God is everywhere and in all things. But I do believe in God in a, in a higher power. I do believe in this force that controls the universe. But I had this notion that God is up there all alone before anything exists and is experiencing pure bliss, nirvana, and says, I want to share this 
right? In the same way that if you or I are having a great experience, when you go and run the New York Marathon, you bring your whole family. Like you want to share that experience, the pain and the suffering, but also the joy and the accomplishment. You want to why share should, it all. Why should I be the only one to lose a toenail? <laughs> Each member of my family should have that joy. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But you want you want to share the experience. So I had this notion that God is up there experiencing nirvana and wants to share it. So that's when God decides to create the universe. And the Kabbalists believe that before the universe existed, there was only God. So God had to make space for the universe. So I think about it like contracting my stomach when I get into a, a crowded elevator, kind of sucking in my stomach. And in that space, that's where God creates the universe in that space. But, but as God creates the universe, there's nothing strong enough to hold divine light. So this act of contraction, which they call tzimtzum, in that moment where God creates the universe, the vessels that are meant to hold the divine light, they shatter and they, they are spread all across the universe, right? So in that moment of creation, God decides to, to give that joy to the, the universe, to us, to human beings, to share that. And so our purpose in life is to experience that joy, but also to help others experience joy by repairing the world, by going out and finding these, these shards, by finding those pieces of divine light and bringing them back into the world, this act of tikkun olam, repairing the world. So our, our purpose in life, our meaning, is to be God's partners in creation because when God created the universe, it was imperfect, it was incomplete. So we exist to finish the work. And we do that by, by fixing the brokenness, by making the pain go away, by helping bring other people joy and enjoying it ourselves, experiencing ourselves. So that was kind of my notion that hit me all at once. And it's allowed me to get through these really tough moments um, and realize that I'm here for a purpose. So um, it's got a little bit of a Kabbalistic sense to it. But it really kind of brought me up. It's really beautiful. And uh, Heschel, particularly relevant right now, it was just his 50th Yurtzeit this last Shabbat. Um, So certainly much on my mind. As we're recording this, it's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And so uh, every year you get to see how those moments come together because Heschel's Yurtzeit often falls right right around this weekend. Um, do you ever get pushback where people say, you know, Zach, it's beautiful that you care so much about the world and repairing the world and the broader, you know, all humanity, but we should focus exclusively on the Jewish people because who else is going to worry about us? Um, you know, and I certainly sometimes hear that from members of my community, and we we try to have a really well-balanced Judaism where we take care of ourselves, we make sure our kids are educated, we have, you know, adult learning from our youngest ones all the way um, through our elders, and at the same time, we're building bridges and reaching out to other communities and worry about others. But do you ever get that question? You know, how do you find that balance between taking care of your own people and your own mishpocha, as you as you said, and also worrying about the broader world? How do you? I do. You know, how do you deal with that tension? I do get a lot of that pushback. Um, not as often as I used to, frankly. And I think that, I don't know if something shifted, we could talk about why, but I did get, used to get a lot of pushback um, because I'm, I'm working in a community that's uh, very open-minded, a community that where you used to live up here in Northern California in the, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, where it's very open-minded and people do engage in social justice work, as we're talking on today on MLK Day, which is National Service Day. We just had 1,200 people here at our JCC, Yoshi, that we plugged into social action projects all across the city, all across the area. Most of them weren't Jewish, right? Most of them were about helping homelessness, 
helping poverty, dealing with environmental action, racial justice, LGBTQ, right? So, so somebody could say, what's Jewish about that? Uh, you know, and I, and I think about this, the old quote from Hillel, right? If you're not for yourself, who's going to be for you? But the next piece of that is, but if you're only for yourself, what are you? And then, of course, if not now, when? Um, and, I, and I think about our, our mission here is to be the, the light unto the nations, which means we have to, to model for ourselves, but for others. Um, and I just encourage people to, when they're, when they're doing their social action work, if it's in a quote-unquote un-Jewish or non-Jewish space, to not keep their Jewishness in the closet, right? To say, this is great. I'm helping you know, deal with climate change, but I'm doing it because my Jewish soul my, my Jewish call to action, my Jewish neshama is telling me I need to do this, right? It's a very Jewish thing to want to repair what's broken. And you can do that in a Jewish or non-Jewish space, and it's still a very Jewish thing. Um, so that's how I respond to that pushback. But as I said, it's happening less and less. I think there's moments where it peaks depending on, you know, what's what's happening in the world. I think during the, the, the racial justice action that became really important during the Black Lives Matter protests a couple summers back, you know, um, and a lot of people in our community, especially a lot of young people, Yoshi, you and I have who have kids who are helping, who are trying to figure out what they want to be in this world and how to make their mark and what impact they want to make. Um, and the things that are popping up as they're growing up uh, become important to them. And so we have to talk to them about like, is this the right spot for me or not? And if it is, where does my Jewishness fit in if it's not a Jewish space, right? So it is, right. I, I enjoy that conversation though. It also connects beautifully to your earlier point about uh, our hybrid identities. You know, we see ourselves, uh, certainly I see myself as a Jew and also as an American. I made Aliyah. I'm also an Israeli citizen. I see myself as a father, my profession, all of these things, uh, spouse, you know, the, these all combined in the totality of who I am. So to reduce it all to just, no, the only part of your identity that you should care about is, you know, the, the Jewish side. And I love your comment about when we are out there doing uh, good for our broader community to proudly bring that Jewish side of us uh, with that. And kolak kavod, to you at, at the Oshman Family JCC for putting together a program like that for the for the broader community. It's beautiful because people should associate, especially in this time of uh, heightened anti-Semitism, I would hope that everyone would associate the Jewish community with a community that gives back. Hopefully, they might even have enough knowledge to see that we give back disproportionate to our numbers. You know, if you look at the, the total number of Jews in this country and the way we contribute— um, hopefully people would, over time, and this might, you know, be uh, wishful and messianic thinking, but, uh, but maybe it's even, maybe not, maybe it's um, a little more sober-minded that through our hard work, people will more and more associate us as Jews with that mission to make the world a better place. Um, you know, I want I to talk that. a little and bit. I think that you're right. I, I, I do. Oh, sorry. No, please, um, go ahead. I, I, I just... I love that notion, Yoshi, that um, by doing good in the world, you know, one of the positive side effects could be a reduction of anti-Semitism. Obviously, that's not the reason we would do it, but if people can look around and be like, hey, you know what, um, this, is, this is a good thing that the Jewish people are doing. Um, and I, I think about, you know, I was invited as a guest to go to Basel for the 125th anniversary of the of the first World Zionist Congress. This was back in August. Um, and Micha Goodman was the keynote speaker. At, at, and he said something really interesting. He said, look, if the first 125 years of Zionism was kind of encapsulated in 
Herzl's first book, which is Alt Newland, um, and his, uh, or no, the Jewish state was the first one, and the second one was Alt Newland. But he said, you know, if the first 125 years was about this quote unquote universal solution to a Jewish problem, he said the next 125 years need to be about Jewish solutions to universal problems, which is exactly the point. How do Jews, how does Israel, how do the Jewish people help fix these problems that are universal, like climate change, like poverty, like homelessness, right? Like that's, I I love how he framed it that way because it makes the whole country of Israel at the tip of the spear for this notion of tikkun olam, light unto the nation. So, um, and, and you and I know better than to believe it is messianic for us to think that the anti-Semitism will go away, that folks will once, you know, finally be like, ah, this is what the Jews are trying to do, but we're still going to do it anyway, because this is what we're meant to do. Yeah. Well, and there's an echo of that in uh, in Jewish law and Jewish um, thinking about these issues. Maimonides writes uh, in Mishnah Torah that there are certain things we should do for non-Jews and as he, the Hebrew phrase he puts it is mipne darke shalom. You do these things not because, from his perspective, not because we're specifically commanded to help Gentiles. This is you know specific situations that he describes, but because it's good for the peace of the world if we help each other and care about each other. So um, I would hope that people would feel called to do this because they're compassionate and loving and they care for all humanity, their own people to be sure, their own mishpacha, to be sure, but broader circles of concern, I'd hope they'd do it just because it's the right thing to do. But if they did it because, you know, maybe then these folks might come to our aid at some other point or might think more kindly of us, especially since we are such um, a small minority of, you know, of the world population— um, I, I, I hear that, what, what you were just saying, that sentiment in, in Maimonides as well. Um, you talk uh, a lot about Jewish peoplehood in your book, and we both had the opportunity over the course of our life to study with uh, the great Avram Infeld, um, who uh, certainly my own thinking about peoplehood was, was much informed by him when I was living in Israel and had the chance to study with him on a couple of different occasions. Um, how do you define Jewish peoplehood, and, and how does it uh, play into your um, doing a Jewish life that's meaningful, relevant, and joyful? We were just talking about you know our concern for the broader world, but there's also this concern for Am Yisrael, for, for our own people. How do, how do you define that, and how does it guide and inspire and motivate you? Yeah, Avram Enfeld has played an important role in my thinking on this. In fact, early drafts of my notion of us thinking that we might be in this fourth era, um, I was calling it kind of Judaism 1.0, Judaism 2.0, Judaism 3.0, and, and Avram Enfeld was the one who said, no, 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 you need to be talking about it in terms of Jewish peoplehood 1.0, 2.0. And, uh, and I think I bought into his you know, his line of thinking, which is that we're not just, as I mentioned, a religion. We're not just a nationality. We're not just a moral code, a culture. We're all of the above, right? And so we know that you could be Jewish and you could be an atheist, or you could be Jewish and a believer that prays three times a day, right? You could be a Jewish that has roots, as I said, in the Ashkenazi world, where I think of my, you know, grandparents and great-grandparents and to be Jewish was about matzo ball soup and was about Yiddish. It was, it's about comedy from Mel Brooks and, you know, Katz's Deli. And, um, and yet I married into a Sephardic family. My, my wife's family, my wife's father is from Saloniki, Greece. And uh, so 
you know, when you and I were growing up, the diversity uh, spectrum was like you're either Ashkenazi or you're Sephardi. And now we know that there are Indian Jews and there are African Jews uh, and there are Asian Jews, right? Like, so it, it, Ladino might have been your grandparents' mother tongue. Um, and kibbeh may have been the Jewish food. And so it's very hard to say that we are just, uh, you know, a nation or just a culture when it encapsulates all of the above. And the only word to, I think, to describe it is peoplehood. Now, Mordecai Kaplan, a blessed memory, talked about it as a civilization. I think that's another good word to encapsulate this. But the idea of peoplehood is just a warmer word. It's am. It's like amichut. It's, it's, it kind of gives that sense of us being a part of a family. Um, and I know that becomes complicated because we all have complicated relationships with our family. Um, but in but in at least zooming the lens out from just thinking about it in terms of a belief system or 613 meets vote, um, I, I, for one, appreciate that um, because it allows me to, like, exa- as I said, you know, I, I, moving um, moving into my wife's family, having that very first Passover Seder with a Sephardi family. I can tell you, Sephardi haroset, a lot better than Ashkenazi haroset, Yoshi. <laughs> so I don't know if you ever had it or not, but oh, you get I get to claim that as my own apricots and dates and, oh, it's delicious. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, that, by the way, that's, that's partly just the very superficial elements, our food, our music, our language. I, I jokingly talk about that, but there's a greater depth also um, to the way that we do Jewish in different parts of the world. Um, and that's all a part of who we are. And, and, and I love that mosaic of the Jewish people. And so that's what it means. It's a long answer for what it means to, to be a people, but that's how I think about it. Well, certainly right now with a new government in Israel that has not, not just many Israelis this past weekend, uh, news reports said something like 80,000 Israelis came to a protest in Tel Aviv about the new government, but certainly many American Jews concerned about this new government's um, devotion to democracy, its willingness to protect minority rights, tensions around uh, liberal Judaism and, you know, uh, different voices. And in, in many ways, these moments are, are great tests of what it means to be uh, com- committed and devoted to Jewish peoplehood. Because if you see it as a core part of your Jewish identity, I am part of an Am, I am part of a people, and I'm part of a family. And just like, you know, my crazy Uncle Bernie, who I don't actually have an Uncle Bernie, I'm just using that as a, as a trope. <laughs> I but, have an Uncle Bernie. <laughs> okay. But, you know, just, so keep going. Yeah, yeah, fill, yeah. Fill in the blank, but, you know, you've got that family member who um, you might have a hard time with and maybe even. Uh, even worse than a hard time, right? But you recognize that they're part of your family, and so you you have a relationship with them. I think a moment like this really tests that. You know, to what extent um, do we feel like nope, we're still part of a people, we're still uh, connected in a way that is uh, that is eternal. Our history is shared, and our destiny is shared, and so. As uh, as hard as it might be at times, I'm going to hang in there. Before you were working, you mentioned your your work in politics, but you were also involved with APAC for uh, more than a decade. And so I know, and with the the Z3 conference that uh, you helped create in Palo Alto, and and I had a chance to visit, and we've done some. Uh, some partnerships with Stephen Wise Temple. Hopefully, we'll have more in the future. I know that that Israel is uh, a, a huge part of your own identity and a huge part of your understanding of what it means to be 
part of an arm, part of a people. How are you dealing with this new government um, aspects of it, especially that might conflict with some of your other deeply held and you know cherished values around pluralism, around the dignity of women, gay, uh, lesbian, transgender um, individuals, etc. How 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 are you navigating this moment? And, uh, and maybe you could bring in a little bit of your, you know, your previous experience that because you have focused so much of your career on Israel. Yeah. Thanks for the softball, Yoshi. I really appreciate those easy questions. Hey, that's why, um, that's why I want you on the podcast. You gotta, you gotta answer these questions for me. Then I bring it to the people, you know, so there you go. that we can all learn more. No, I'm glad you did because I think a lot about it. I, I really do think about what does it mean to be a people right now? What does it mean to, for diaspora Jewry to have a relationship with Israeli Jewry, right? Are we, are we married? In which case, you know, you can get divorced. Uh, or, or are we siblings? In which case you can argue um, and you're still super close, but you can't get divorced. Are we cousins? Or like you said, are, are we the uncle-nephew relationship? I think the old days of relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry, especially American Jewry, was the, the rich American uncle model, right? In the old days... Um, Israelis look to us in America to support them. Um, and that was usually financially, diplomatically, politically, but we didn't get to have a say. We didn't have the chutzpah to go there. You made Aliyah, but most American Jews don't make Aliyah, don't serve in the army. Their kids aren't being, God forbid, blown up in pizzerias and discos. So Israelis are like, look, um, thank you for your money and your support on the world stage. That's about where it should stop. But I think that's the old model, Yoshi. And I think now we're trying to figure out what is the new model? What is the relationship in the 21st century between Israel uh, and, and diaspora Jewry, specifically North American Jewry, where in North America, um, we're still pretty, God, thank God, strong. Um, we're still pretty secure. We're not without our challenges and our risks, of course. But for many of the Jews around the rest of the world, it's not necessarily the same. So what does the relationship look like between North American Jewry and Israeli Jewry today? And do we get to have a say? In the old days, we had a stake with no say. But do we get to have a say right now, to your point, Yoshi, with the laws that are trying to be passed in the Knesset vis-a-vis who is a Jew and the Supreme Court and the LGBTQ, as to you mentioned. So I struggle with this personally, um, the, the, the laws and what the makeup of the government looks like. But I also think that Israel is an incredible democracy. It is resilient. And they may go through ups and downs with their leadership, just like we do in this country. And it's, it's a mistake to, to judge Israel and our relationship with Israel solely through the political lens. I think there are two areas where a lot of American Jews have issues with Israel, the politics and the religion. But those are two things among so many others that should be a part of our relationship with Israel. We need to have a strong, vibrant, multi-layered relationship just like we have a, a relationship like that with our own country, with America. Um, and so there are people in your congregation, people at my JCC who love Trump and people who hate Trump, people who love Biden and Obama, people who hate Biden, right? But they don't leave the country when the leadership transition that takes place puts somebody in power that they really dislike. They, they double down on their activism. They work harder to make the changes that they want to see happen. And I think that's the sort of relationship we should have with Israel. We should say, okay, I still love Israel for the culture, for the language, for the spirituality, for the, the fact that it provides a safe haven for us, for the changes that they are making to our pluralistic religiosity. But you know what? There are some things that I have issues with. So let's figure out what, how, how we productively make those changes. I don't believe the relationship should only be about criticism. 
I don't think it should, the criticism should be, you know, wiped under the rug either. Um, but if in any relationship, Yoshi, if it's, if it's you and your spouse or if it's you and your, your, your business partner or you and a sibling, if all you do is talk about those things you disagree with, those areas that you have problems with the other, that relationship's not going to last in 5, 10, or 20 years. Eventually, both of you are going to throw your hands up and be like, what do we need this for? But if you spend time on the things you disagree with and also you nurture the wonderful things, the relationship will get stronger. And we need to do more of that. American Jews need to do a little bit more of that. And by the way, Israeli Jews too. They need to look at us and not say, eh, you're going to be gone in a generation because of assimilation and intermarriage and anti-Semitism. No, we have to recognize that there's a lot of beauty that we contribute to each other and spend as much time, if not more, on those issues as well. It's beautiful. And I love that metaphor of, you know, a marriage. You can think of other kinds of relationships. What kind of what kind of relationship do we want to be in with one another? Hopefully it really is one that feels like, you know, whether it's the concept of mishpacha, you know, we are a family, we're bound together, and uh and there's there's nothing to be done about it other than to lean into it. And uh we can talk about the things that are challenging, we can talk about our disagreements, but we don't live in those. Because as you said, if you do, that doesn't feel like a joyful relationship. You know, at a certain point, you're going to say, I don't really want to be in that relationship. I wrote uh, recently a piece for the Jewish Journal down here about, uh, and the title they chose was Never Done With Israel. And it was based on a conversation I'd had with someone who was so upset about the new government that they said, you know, I'm done with Israel. And uh, and on the one hand, you know, I can, can understand being upset about something to the degree that you say, okay, you know, that's it. And certainly there are moments as an American where something happens and, and, you know, we might think, boy, if the system is this fouled up, you know, that's it. But then, you know, we take a breath and we think about it and say, well, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, are we, are we actually going to abandon this place or are instead we going to double down on trying to make it better? And you gave a, a lot of great examples earlier of ways that we can do that to maintain that engagement, maintain that connection. Um, you know, continue to to be involved and engaged. Um, I I've taken up a lot of your time, but but I, I wanted to ask you one more question, and it's really about how um, you know how this work, and maybe it's also not just writing the book, but now you've gone and you've done you know a bunch of book talks, you've done these kinds of interviews on podcasts and and other things. How how has this whole experience uh, for you in terms of your own Jewish identity? Anything along the way that really surprised you? Anything that you discovered about yourself that you didn't know beforehand? Uh, anything that, that you just want to leave us with where you say, wow, this was something in the course of researching this and, uh, and, and writing this and reflecting on my work. Um, this is something that, an insight I really, I really came to that I want to leave people with. What's... Uh, any one of those things, I know I gave you a lot of options there, but any one of those things that, that maybe you want to leave us with? Yeah, uh, I, lear- I, I learned a lot in the writing of the book, and I've learned a lot, as you said, when I've been talking about it and going on this book tour. Um, so I'm blessed to be a part of both the JCC Association of North America, but also JCC Global. There are Jewish community centers around the world, and I've been again, honored to have these conversations with folks in Latin America, folks in Europe, um, former Soviet Union. And 
what's been most interesting is how humbling this has been, Yoshi. Like, thank goodness I did not name the book The Manifesto, right? Like, it's chutzpah dick enough of me to have said A Manifesto because I realized that this is a manifesto for me and my, my own little place in this world. Right For me to think that I can speak on behalf of diaspora Jewry or American Jewry or Northern California Jewry, Yoshi, is super hubristic, super arrogant. Um, and I've learned that as I've gone out there and talked to people who are doing pretty cool stuff all over the world uh, that I think that we could afford to learn back in our own homes. I, I, I've kind of realized, okay, this is something I want to adopt here. So one of the big things uh, that I put into the final chapter of the book, the, the, the next big Jewish idea, is this idea of a leap year, which is an acronym for learning, experience, action, and peoplehood. This idea of a, of a gap year between high school and college for all Jews around the world. Like Instead of the bar bat mitzvah being the pinnacle of the Jewish young person's journey, and then we hope that there's a Jewish wedding down, there, down the road, right? Like, what if we could, like the Mormons, have a missionary year? Like, what if we could send our kids to Israel? Now, the Israelis send their kids to the army, as we know, before they go to college. But more and more Israelis are sending their kids on a Mechina program, which is a gap year leadership program. Now, what if we could send our kids on this one-year program between high school and college, and our North American kids and our Israeli kids spend the time together, and the experience is part of the time in Israel and part of the time in the diaspora. Now you're having a real exchange of right? A real relationship in each other's homes, in each other's places, getting to know each other. So then when you have an issue with each other's politics or religion, it's just one little piece of like, yeah, but I know this place and I know these people and I'm in love with them and they're part of my family. Plus, it'll prepare our kids for college a lot better. A lot of them are going off to college too early. Too, you know, I feel like um, as I've been talking about this great big new idea, I learned that, well, a number of communities actually already do this. A lot of Latin American countries do this. We know that a majority of the Orthodox American Jewish community does this. So um, it's been humbling. This experience has been very humbling, uh, and I've continued to realize that I need to always learn. I need to always push myself. I can't rest on my laurels. I need to get better and better. Um, and I'm only on you know in the middle of my own journey, Yoshi. I'm learning um, and changing and questioning. And maybe next year when we have this conversation, my practice will be a little bit different than it was today. Zach, thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us and for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. And just you you, you were going kind of fast at the very end. So Leap Year, you said it stands for learning, experience, action. Action and peoplehood. And peoplehood. Learning, experience, action, and peoplehood. And a Leap Year, as we know, is a year that's an additive year. It's a year where there's an extra year. And I think about the idea of Nachshon. You know, I'll just end with this story, Yoshi. Thank you for reminding me to define it. But, you know, as as we talk about, uh, you know, the beginning of Shemot, the beginning of Exodus, um, you know, and a new pharaoh came to pass who didn't know uh, Joseph. And, and a few parshot, we're going to be reading about Moses in the Exodus. And the whole idea is, as Moses gets to the shores of the Red Sea and nothing happens, and the greatest army of the time, Pharaoh's army, is barreling down upon the Israelites they start to panic. And even Moses panics, as you know, right? Like he raises up his staff and he cries out to God. God is like, Mati why are you yelling at me? Like, do something. And Nachshon jumps into, he leaps, he takes a leap into the Red Sea, Yoshi. And that's only at that moment does the sea part, right? So it takes a, it takes a tachlis, it takes a moment of action. It takes a leap sometimes, a leap of faith to really make a massive change. And so 
that's why we're calling this a leap year. That's what it stands for. That's the story it comes from. And, um, and I know some people out there are already doing this, but I hope it, I hope it catches on. Zach, thank you so much. Appreciate the time. Appreciate your friendship. And I wish you all good things with this book. And I love the idea of getting back together again, either uh, when you do the revised edition or in your next book and talking about how this change, and that I'm so inspired by that. People who are open to the, sort of this continuous growth. Like here I am at this point in my journey. This is how I understand it. But I have the humility to know that I'm going to keep growing. I'm going to keep changing. And I just appreciate that so much about you. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Yoshi. It's been a pleasure. And I, I, I love your friendship with me and um, the advice that you always give me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Well, that's the podcast. Thank you so much to Zach Bodner for making time for us. You can go to ZachBodner.com, Z-A-C-K-B-O-D-N-E-R.com to get a copy of the book and learn more about his work. I want to thank our producer, Ryan Gorsi, our editor, Raz Husseini. Our theme music was composed by Maestro David Cates and myself and features a vocal from Josh Goldberg. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. Stay hopeful, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Take care.